Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. And my topic today is historical reflection. And my guest is Philip Bayers, General Smuts's great-grandson and aangetroude familie of mine. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, uh, Philip is a retired businessman. He, he's got very strong ties to the SAAF and the RAF. He's a great Zionist and a friend of, uh, he very definitely a friend of Israel. And he tells me that we were separated by the Yikske that, and the Buravos curtain. Hello, Phil, welcome. Good morning, Kaz, how are you? Um, well, thanks. It's so good to see your face. We're on Zoom and it's, we haven't seen each other for ages. So it's so good to see you, Phil. Right back I at need, you, Kaz. Really good to see you. You're going to actually tell us, I, I said to Kathy Kayla, our CEO, <clears throat> what, um, how often do we get listeners? As she said, every, every minute. So we have got to actually keep reintroducing ourselves. So, would you like to say how we met? Well, first of all, I'm delighted that there are new listeners every minute, not only for High FM, but for those poor folks who have to put up with hearing my voice yet again. <laughs> so, um, in, 19, in 2017, um, I was approached uh, early in the year by Peter Bailey and asking if I'd be prepared to travel to Israel for the uh, celebration of the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. And Telford then put out um, an ad on the web advertising the, um, the program for the centenary. And this was picked up, if I recall correctly, by Shera. My daughter, Renana. yes. <laughs> and it was, remind me, I still need to do some shout outs. And she <laughs> sent it to you and you mailed Peter and Peter said to me, sent me a mail saying would you like to um to to deal with this because what you said in your mail was that the obas's youngest son yanni and his namesake was also your uncle and i thought well that is really interesting because he's my great uncle and so then you and i entered into comms and we figured out how in fact we related that yanni um our mutual uncle um his wife daphne was your mom's sister. And your and, godmother. And my godmother. Mm -hmm. And um, they were both extremely dear to me. They were lovely people, endlessly entertaining. Yanni was one of the great characters I'm lucky enough to have known in my life. And um, and then we met at, at ORT. I think it was ORT then already at the airport, where you said that you're in some VIP facility <laughs> and um, come and have an iced coffee which is where we met at, uh, in, in a VIP lounge and had an iced coffee before we went through the, the, the dog sniffing, make sure Philip isn't a terrorist process. And onto the terrible aeroplanes. Oh, uh, they're awful. <laughs> um, Philip and I became firm friends from then onwards. 
And I followed him around the different places he was going to in Israel. One of the places we went to was the kibbutz Ramat Yochanan, which is named after uh, General Smuts. And um, today I thought the reason why I would like to get us started, first of all, is because we have just had the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. I've also been doing a project for one of my grandchildren on my father, who was in the RAF. And I thought, what better person to speak to than um, than Philip and get, because Philip is my go-to encyclopedia on all these matters, military matters, he and, and Peter Bailey. And, um, and I knew from my father that General Smuts had started the RAF. So I promptly got hold of Philip, and he had just he he sent me a fantastic uh, talk that he had given about at the centenary of the RAF. Can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah. Um, indulge me just for fifteen seconds before everybody loses interest. I just need to say hello to one or two. My cousin Shira Jordan Elisheva and Amitai in Renana. My friends of many years, Peter and Jeannie Bailey. My dear friends Rob and Jill Hyde. Joel and Beryl Klucknick, and a, a friend of more recent times who has been very gracious to me, Brian Berman. The, the Royal Air Force came about in 1917, the Obos was transferred or withdrawn from Germany, East Africa, where he'd been trying to catch Paul von Letter Fallback, the, the, the German general, and he was sent to the Imperial Conference in, in London. And at the conclusion of which, he was invited to stay on and join the Imperial War Cabinet. And the fascinating thing about the Imperial War Cabinet was that there were no soldiers on it. It was a bunch of politicians. It actually makes me think a little of our, our Judicial Services Committee, doesn't it? But, um, you know, it does. But going back just further than that, I mean, at one stage, he, he was an enemy to the British when they were fighting the Boer War. And he was an enemy to the British. So it's quite uh, absolutely fascinating that they should have wanted him on their war cabinet. Absolutely. There's, in fact, um, I was going to refer to it later, but um, I can I re refer to it now. Queen Frederica, Frederica of the Hellenes, when they were exiled to South Africa um, with her husband, Crown Prince Paul, and um, she asked him once, and I quote from her book here, which is called The Measure of Understanding. She said to him, does, does he hate the Germans? And... The Obas answered, and, and he said, no, Churchill asked me the same question. And I answered him that I could not hate anybody as much as I hated the British during the Boer War. And he said, you grow beyond these basic emotions when you learn to understand people and circumstances. I have long forgotten how to hate. Now I'm only sorry for people, for nations, and on rare occasions for myself. Isn't that um, fantastic? And you know, Phil, to think about it, our mutual Aunt Daphne, my, my grandfather actually fought for the British during the war, the Boer War, and so there were opposing um, factions, and here General Smuts's son, Yanni, ended up marrying my Aunt Daphne, who was <laughs> on the British side. <laughs> Talk life about reconciliation, hey? Life's too short, because life is really, really too short, and I think so many in South Africa could do well to learn that. And let it be said, so many of the virulent anti-Semitists we um, 
we're finding, which seems to be me, certainly to be uh, increasing in number all the time. Um, life's too short for that. They're more important things, really. But um, to come back to the Obar, so he was the only soldier on the, on the Imperial War Cabinet. Nobody else there had any fighting experience whatsoever. And Britain was having a bit of a rough time at, the, at that stage in 1917 because the Germans were bombing London, Coventry, and various other cities with quite some significant um, consequences. So they said to him, well, you know, they are appointing a two-man commission to investigate what to do for this, uh, to resolve this, this problem. And the two-man commission comprised the Prime Minister and the Obas. And the Obas went ahead and did it on his own because uh, the Prime Minister, being Welsh, said that they're good at coal mining and singing, but they know very little about much else, particularly when it comes to, uh, to warfare. And the Obas then produced two reports. The first was on the 19th of July, 1917, which addressed the matter of the Germans bombing England. And it was fairly elementary if one looks at it today, in hindsight. It was basically uh, things like concentrating your, the, the ACAC, the anti-aircraft capabilities, um, which were very diversely spread and, and consequently ineffectual. And that, that, that report was accepted by, um, by Parliament. And then on the 17th of August, the OBAS produced a second report, which is now known as the Smuts Report. And we're going to get back to that in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. We've just got a very short YouTube um, by uh, Churchill. Thank you, Craig. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Philip Bayers, my cousin by marriage. And we are talking about uh, General Smuts's role in the RAF. My father was on, in the RAF, and Philip Bayers is General Smuts's great-grandson. So we have a connection there, too. Phil, that was what he said about the RAF and, and how uh, never in the history has so much been reliant on so few uh, to win the war. But your grandfather, you were saying that he then put out a paper, and I think it was called, this was right at the very beginning when we were in war, World War um, One, actually, uh, 1917, wasn't it? When he put out the Smuts paper, what, what came to be called the Smuts paper? Yes, indeed. Seventeenth of August, nineteen seventeen. Um, the the British air capability in those days was censored and commanded by both the army and the navy. Uh, in the navy's case, it was the Royal Naval Air Service, and in the army's case, it was the Royal Flying Corps. And just to give you an idea of how disparate the two were, at the time of the Obas's report. The army and navy had on order nine thousand four hundred and eighty-three aircraft of 76 varieties, 
and 20,000 engines of 76 different kinds. That is, uh, <laughs> that is just, that's a logistical nightmare. And oh. basically what the OBAR said in his report is that they need to combine the two. They are um, fighting ineffectively. And so he proposed that the, uh, an air ministry be set up and that an independent air force be created, independent of both the army and navy. And this was accepted. He also says, interesting, it's a seven-page type document. I've got a copy of the original here somewhere. And he actually says, please don't tell the Navy that we're doing this because they are bound to protest. <laughs> and, and, and so it was that on the, the 1st of April, 1918, the Royal Air Force came into being and had the first independent Air Force, Air Force in the world. Um, there's some, some interesting comments that... The first chief of staff, chief of air staff, was um, then General Sir Hugh Trenchard. And a lot of people believe him to have been what they call the father of the RAF. Now, the way I explain it, and the RAF has never complained about it or disputed it, is that the OBAS conceived the Royal Air Force, carried it through gestation, and gave birth to it. And after it had, the Air Force had been born, the Royal Air Force, he gave it up for adoption. And the father who took over, the adoptive father, was Sir Hugh Trenchard, later Lord Trenchard. Um, and, and they've never argued about that. So it was Obas's idea. Um, and you, you know, uh, you, you say the Royal Air Force. And I also read that the Royal comes from the fact that, that the king had to pass it. And um, it was actually initially called the Imperial Air Force. And it then became the Royal Air Force. Is that correct? Very, very briefly. It should be remembered that King George V and the Obas were also on very good terms. They rather were rather fond of each other. And so, yeah, it, it was very briefly so. Then it became, uh, as in the, the Royal Navy, it, it got the royal, the, the royal Seal, if one could put it that way. Just as a product these days, by has on its box by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen, or, or you know things like that. So it's got it's got royal endorsement. Yeah, correct. Now, what I would actually like to just go back to for a moment is General Smuts's upbringing, because I found that very fascinating. I was reading an article the other day on how so many children are really battling to catch up with their work. A lot of them haven't had the the social media that has allowed people to be on Zoom um, or, or lessons. And, um, and I thought to myself, gosh, you know, it's, that's really a handicap for them to try and catch up. But let's just look at a bit of a background of General Smuts's uh, upbringing. First of all, he was the second son of, of his father. And his first, his brother, his eldest brother, was therefore, as tradition, sent to be educated and, uh, and to become a predicant, a preacher. And then he passed away, I think, was it of typhoid fever? Typhoid in 1882, and, correct. Okay, and at that stage, General Smuts, young Smuts, had had no ed formal education at all. He was 12 at the time. Do you want to just carry on from there? Well, the what he what he done he was um, until the age of twelve. There's a, there's a saying that Vaatje dat geleer op sy maas is So mm -hmm. his his home education 
was the home education they received was all that he had until he was 12 years old. Um, and reading in, in our mutual uncle Yanni's book, the formative force in his life at that stage was a Hottentot, as, as Yanni refers to it in his book, or Koi probably, or San, um, called Adam. And Adam um, was a, an enormous um, force in, in the Obas's life and the development of his appreciation of nature. And so th that also belies for me certainly the accusations that the Obas was overtly racist. Um, <clears throat> you don't develop a relationship like that and maintain harsh racial uh, feelings. But when Machil died at, in 1882, they decided, well, okay, Jan, um, they probably called him Yanni. You're off to school now. So off he went to the Ark, uh, the Ark in the Rebek West, where it took him four years to matriculate. And that's one of the great regrets I have in my life. It took me 12 years of hard labor to, to matriculate. <laughs> and um, I can only imagine to my great sadness and regret that a lot of the intellect that the Obas had has sort of disappeared in the last three generations. Because I was left with very little. Oh, nonsense. You and, you and our, our mutual cousins are incredibly clever. <laughs> but um, after that, he, he did so well in his, um, in, his, in his schooling that he got a bursary to what was then called the Victoria College, now Stellenbosch University, where he read arts and sciences. And it was where he met Omar, Omar Smuts, Sabella Margarita Kricher from Libertas in Dorp Street. And that is where he really began to shine in the sense that his academic prowess and intellect came to uh, came to be more visible. Uh, there's one occasion where he um, felt or understood that he was getting a credit and did not have to do Greek as a consequence of this credit. And he then discovered that in fact, <clears throat> there was no credit that carried over. So he had to, would have to do Greek. So he went and shut himself up in his lodgings. And <clears throat> six days later, he emerged able to read, write and speak Greek. Good. And, um, and that, that is just, I think, an indication of just how, uh, how powerful he was in terms of intellect and um, probably, and probably I, one of the great intellectuals of, this, of the last century. Very definitely. And I remember my mom saying that he, he actually enjoyed reading the Bible in original Greek. Well, yes, 100% correct. Um, before the days of television and and Facebook and things, um, when Omar and Opa back in the days were had nothing to do of an evening, the one would start a Bible verse, and the other would be expected to complete it in Greek. Both in Greek. Both in Greek. Because Omar Smuts herself was um, was highly intellectual. She spoke German, English, Afrikaans, Dutch. German and Greek, with, the smetri, with some, smetri, uh, some French to uh, add some flavor to the pot. She was. Now, just going back to, to your time when you actually went to go and um, give this talk at the Royal Air Force, and you, there was a, there's a, a statue to your grandfather there as well. Just tell me a bit about that. Uh, well, how did you feel going in there? Because the, um, there were two specific elements. Um, the one was the, the Royal Air Force Club on Piccadilly, um, which is just the most ex extraordinary place 
on the on, on the planet. It really is quite wonderful. It is old school military tradition where you've got Beckman and people bring you bottles of wine and it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Um, Royal Air Force Cranwell, um, just outside Lincoln, um, obviously in Lincolnshire. Um, the the OBAS was responsible for that because that was a, a naval facility, which when the RAF came into being, the OBAS commandeered as a college to train pilots and officers of the of the Royal Air Force. Now it should be remembered that at the time that that happened, he was chairman of the War Priorities Committee, which was an independent committee reporting to the War Cabinet, and they had complete say. They had carte blanche over British resources, whether it was coal, steel, electricity, whatever, they could determine how it was best to be used. And it was probably under that guise that he um, took over um, what was to become the Royal Air Force College at Cranwell. And Air Commodore Chris Luck, now Air Vice Marshal Chris Luck, said to me when I was there, he said, without your grandfather, we'd not be standing here today because... Oh the building would not have been Royal Air Force and we'd be at a different location. So they remember him with this um, enormous respect. Um, and the, the Royal Air Force tends to be better at history, shall I say, than probably most. So they, they've that? got great appreciation. Hmm. Why is that? I think it's all part of their makeup. Um, oh. I, think the, I think the fact that the war, other than in Europe, but in um, from an Allied point of view, a victorious Allied point of view, it is, it is only two generations ago that the Second World War was fought in England, certainly in the air, it was where, where, where the bombing took place. And I think that that is just folklore that's been carried down from generation to generation because the generation two, two generations ago was so directly exposed to it. Now, you know, now, and I know that a lot of South African South Africans were also part of the, the Royal Air Force. You know, some famous ones as well, um, part of the Royal Air Force. See, the, the, the definitive would obviously be Salem Malone, who was a Spitfire pilot, who wrote the 10 uh, lessons for air warfare. There was Dutch Hugo. Um, there were a number um, of, of South Africans that went and flew for the Royal Air Force. And of course, then coming to something more personal for you, um, Bomber Command. Now, just to come to Bomber Command, it was commanded during the, the second three quarters of, this, of the Second World War by Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, known as Bomber Harris. Now, Bomber Harris is interesting because he was born in England. He then immigrated at the age of 17 to Rhodesia, and he, he fought for the Allied forces under the Obas and Rebuerta in Deutsche Südwest Afrika, which incidentally was the, was the first Allied victory of the, of, the, of the First World War. And then went back to, back to England where he rose to become the um, commander-in-chief of Bomber Command. And Bomber Command, and speaking uh, personally now, the records that you sent me of your father's war record are quite astonishing. It is, point number one, highly unusual for a pilot to be rated exceptional. That happens very, very seldom. Let me just, just let me uh, say why. Um, I sent a whole lot of, um, well, a few of my dad's logbook entries to Philip to say, you know, please decipher these for me. I'm not sure what they mean. And the one said, 
uh, exceptional pilot. Was that right, Phil? Correct. And um, so that's what Philip's saying. It was very unusual. Or in, and at that stage, I think he was in Belgium at uh, Einfeld, was it? Einfeld. Um, <clears throat> yes, an exceptional pilot, it says. That was by the wing commander Shaw. Now, why do you say it's so unusual to be called a, an exceptional pilot? You see, most pilots are rated average or above average. If they're rated below average, they'll be seconded off to the army and uh, the infantry and go crawling around in the mud. But except, exceptional pilots are, are very few and far between. What is also to me fascinating is the diversity of aircraft that he flew. Spitfires, uh, everybody knows a Spitfire. That's the one aircraft, the most iconic aircraft of all time, I'm quite certain. The Weddington, which is a bomber, it's a medium bomber. So that he would have flown in sorties over Europe. Um, the Airspeed Oxford, which is a, 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 a bomber training aircraft. The Ferry Martinet is interesting because that was a, a, a plane that is specifically designed to pull drogues for air gunnery. So they'd pull a, a banner some way behind the aircraft and um, the Spitfires and Hurricanes and Mosquitoes and whatever else would then shoot at the, uh, at the drogue banner. And then, of course, you'd have the, the Mosquito, which is, for me, the second most beautiful aircraft in all of history. But I do need to tell you a bit of, of why I have such um, unbridled, if I could put it that way, respect for the Bomber Command air crews. Now, I would just like everybody just to try and digest these figures. They are actually mind-boggling. During the Second World War, the Bomber Command flew 365 operational, 365,000 operational sorties. Out of which, during which they lost 8,325 aircraft. During the same time, they dropped a million, 1.03 million tons of ordnance. That's an mm. awful lot of bombs. Now, this is where the really shocking part comes in. Bomber Command had a total of 125,000 aircrew. Of that 125,000, 55,573 were killed, which is 44% of the total. Good heavens. A further 8,400 were wounded, which is 6.7% of the total, and 9,838 were taken prisoner, which is 7.9% of the total, which gives you a total casualty that's including killed, wounded, and taken prisoner of 73,814 which is 59% of total aircrew, which is absolutely mind-boggling. And the fact that people like your airmen, like your father, could still go and climb into the aircraft at dusk and fly off over Germany. And that's, 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 they're standing really near 50% chance of not coming home. And it is utterly astonishing to me. And of course, Bomber Harris came in for huge criticism we're going to get back to Bomber Harris in a moment. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Philip Bayers. And we're about to listen to a, a very short YouTube of, by Winston Churchill. Um, and um, thank you, Craig. Service men and women parade for a special service at a Royal Air Force Station on the National Day of Prayer 
when the people of Britain are assembling all over the country to ask for divine guidance and to acknowledge their dependence upon the overruling power of God. A scene which typifies the spirit of service as we enter the fourth year of war. Men of proven courage and valor, seeking through prayer God's help and blessing in the stern tasks that lie ahead of them. Onto the aerodrome are marching between seven and eight thousand men and women for the simple service of rededication. The biggest parade of our airmen ever filmed. Two years ago at this time, the gallant few of the RAF were meeting the full weight of Germany's Air Force in the Battle of Britain. Today, that small company of heroes has grown to an aerial host. Look back through history and find how the people of this land of ours have always committed their cause to Almighty God. These are modern crusaders who are not ashamed to pray. making one of the most impressive scenes ever witnessed. At the start of the service, the light blue standard of the Royal Air Force is hoisted. Then, in memory of the fallen, a silence is observed which is only broken by the drone of a plane flying overhead. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Philip Bayers, General Smuts's great-grandson and uh, my cousin by marriage. Um, we Unfortunately, that didn't come through as clearly as I had heard it myself. It was about the RAF and, and about their belief in, in, uh, in, a, in God, in a higher power. And it reminded me, the reason why I put that in, because it reminded me of what my dad always said to me that there were no um, atheists in foxholes. And he said before they went out, you know, we stopped just before the advert, we actually were speaking about um, bomber uh, command and my dad, for instance, flying those um, um, his bomber command uh, sorties over Germany and what have you. And he, in, in his logbook and in his personal diary, he says how many of his greatest friends were killed. And you never knew until you flew home what it was like. And he said that on the one uh, flight back, he actually says, if it wasn't for the fact that I got home, uh, and I think he said because of God, uh, there would have been no Susan and no Donald. Donald was my brother. And it, it struck me very definitely as I was doing more research. And as you said also about how many people, I mean, 59% is, is an incredible amount of, of people to, to be lost. And my dad said that there were no atheists in foxholes, that you got into a position where you didn't know how you were going to get home. Your instruments were knocked out. You, you, you had shrapnel and bombs shooting everywhere, and you had to land on a landing uh, strip that was actually was not lit because of enemy. Uh, enemies coming in so he said you you have to rely on something and he certainly relied on god <laughs> so uh, that's, that's that's lovely and um, 
I think entirely valid. Um, the bomber command, it was in, right towards the end of the war, bomber command carried out what was called or became to known as carpet bombing rather than precision bombing. And the most obvious example there is the German city of Dresden, where the carpet bombing, which basically obliterated large parts of the city, led to self-sustaining firestorms and tens of thousands of people died. But the British themselves reacted very badly to that and blamed Bomber Harris for what having happened. Now, that is not entirely fair because for two reasons. One, Bomber Harris and Bomber Command would not have done that without the very explicit consent of the, of the War Cabinet. And point number two, it, regardless of that opinion either, even it's, it's, it's a, it doesn't do justice to those 55,500 aircrew who lost their lives. It, it does, it's, I think, grossly unfair. When in, in, on the Strand in London, um, St. Clement Dane, which is the church of the Royal Air Force, and there are two statues standing outside. The one is of Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, and the other, the other one is Lord Dowding from Fighter Command. And when they erected this, the Queen Mother, as we, as we would have known her, she unveiled the statue of Bomber Harris, and there was a substantial number of the crowd present who protested violently against the statue of Bomber Harris being erected outside St. Clement Dane calling him a war criminal. And apparently the Queen Mother was very taken aback by this. Certainly it wasn't her perspective. What, what the controversy did result in was that, whereas all the other services and divisions of services had memorials erected throughout England, well, from the First World War and later the Second World War, there was not one for Bomber Command until only very recently, relatively speaking, in June 2012, a Bomber Command statue memorial was erected in Green Park, just diagonally opposite the RAF Club. And that still gets vandalized. It still gets painted red and things like that um, because, of the, because of the carpet bombing thing. But I, I just think it's really sad that people, not only the losses, but the people who actually had the, had the, the chutzpah to go and climb into an aircraft every single or every second night um, and send a 50% chance of not coming home. Um, they deserve to be honored. They deserve to be recognized and they deserve to be remembered. So, uh, you know, I um, can think of nothing more brave than that. Uh, I must admit, in doing my research, I am absolutely amazed and incredibly proud of, of that. And of course, my mother's first husband was uh, in South African Air Force and killed um, up north. And she, oh. he's, you know, the memorial, the, the South African Air Force Memorial near Victoria. Yes, very yes, cool. His name is mentioned there, Basil Brodzia. Um, I didn't know get, that. That is, that is very interesting. We'll get wow. back shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Philip Bears, General Smuts's great-grandson, and my cousin through marriage. And I was telling you about my mom's uh, first husband, and I said Basil Brodziak, but Basil's actually his brother, and uh, it's Gordon Brodziak was my mother's uh, first husband. He was shot down, reported missing, and never found. 
Now, Paul, what I would like to actually, we're going to be called to wrap up. So what I would like to actually talk about for a moment, because we all have so many choices in our lives, and I think right now we're needing to look at those and uh, and look at the courage it takes so often to step forward into the role that is expected of us. And Churchill said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And this is very much, I think, what we're looking at today in our pandemic. But and as anti-Semitism is rising and they, they're calling it uh, anti-Zionism, anti-Israel, but at, it's, of course, uh, uh, with anti-Semitism, the two go together. So I'd like to talk about the, the OBOS, General Smuts's relationship with Chaim Weissman. I, I know that he was really involved with the Balfour Declaration for the State of Israel and that his last official act that he did was to recognize the state of Israel, which was a promise that he had made to Chaim Weissman. How did they become friends? Because they met in 1917, um, we, we had on the Obas on the one hand a soldier, and then on the, the other, a brilliant physicist um, who at that stage had just invented a new type of explosive which revolutionized um, England's war effort. And I think the initial meeting was, was an intellectual one. And they were both brilliant. But I think the, the OBAS found a huge commonality with what uh, Dr. Weitzman was, was wishing to achieve. Um, and one must, must remember that the, the OBAS believed very firmly from, um, from, from very young that Israel was the home of the Jews. It is, it's in thousand years worth um, of, of written history, thousands of years of written history. And the Obas felt that that very strongly was not only correct, it was also um, historically the, um, the fact. And he and, and Weizmann became very, very close friends uh, to the extent that the last trip that the Obas ever did at the age of 79 and some, I think, seven months before he died, um, was to go to London for the last time against his doctor's advice to speak at Chaim Weizmann's 75th birthday function. Last trip he ever did. And Weizmann, of course, visited him in Irene at the big house. Um, so they, they were very close personal friends, as, as was uh, with Obas and Churchill. Um, but the Obas, there was a, certainly a meeting of the minds when it came to, um, to Israel and the, a home for the Jews. And the Obas was very involved, not only um, in the uh, Balfour Declaration, where Peter Bailey, who's a highly accomplished historian and author, uh, did research in this, and he calls the Obas the forgotten man of the Balfour Declaration. And that is all good and well, but when the, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, were then um, in charge of, of Palestine, they had possession of Palestine, and when they got to the a League of Nations, which was a creation of the Obas, um, they had a thing called the San Remo Conference afterwards to formalize the decisions of the, um, of the League of Nations. And it was there that the Obas created what we, we South Africans have experience of it, the mandate system. And England was given a Class A mandate over Palestine. And South Africa was given a Class C mandate over Southwest Africa, as it was then. 
And by that means, England was able to assume control of Palestine um, and carry out the, um, the implications of the, of the declaration. Um, England tried on numerous occasions. Um, every, time, every time the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem started shouting, England got cold feet. And as we know, England stood in the way of immigration to Palestine in every step they could. Joel took me to a place where the, 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 the Jews living in Palestine in those days all had guns, but they had no, no ammunition. And Joel Klotnik took me to the, the gun, the bullet factory. <laughs> We're going to have to end, Philip, uh, but we won't end on a war note. We'll actually end on a peace note that um, General Smuts was also very much into holism and into nature and into how, as a whole, we could create our own form of peace. We're going to have to end. Craig is saying wrap up. Thank you so much, Craig, for keeping us on air. Philip is, is going to be immigrating soon, unfortunately, to Australia. But um, so, Philip, we wish you the best, the very best of luck. But I'm going to be seeing you anyway tomorrow, thank goodness. And I really look forward, look forward to that. Look thank forward you, Craig. And thank you, Phil.